morning. Here we are at the end of another month. And whether, again, you're with us in person here in the building or you're worshiping with us at home, we are just thrilled we can be together again as the body of Christ. I appreciate the worship team. And uh, I've been working with Darren a little bit on his song. He did really good. I was proud of him. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, beautiful. All right. You take your Bibles, your devices, whatever you're using. See, if you're at home, I can't check on you, but I got my eyes on you here in the building. So turn to 1 John, the epistle in the back of the Bible. Just find uh, your concordance in the back of the Bible, the book of concordance, and then back up, Revelation, a few books, and 1 John, the first epistle, not the Gospel of John, 1 John in the back of your Bible. If you'll notice at the top of your handout, We began talking about we're going to wrap up today this attribute of God. And I, as I mentioned to you last week, as we look at this attribute that God is love, again, the most misunderstood doctrine probably in all scripture and most quoted, the one everyone likes to, God is love, but love is not God. We talked about that last week. And, and one of the things you notice in the writings of John, and particularly in the, the epistle of 1 John, is that he says the same thing in several different ways, repetitively emphasizing whatever he's talking about. Here in 1 John, that subject is love. There are other subjects that are addressed in the epistle of 1 John, but his focus, and what we're looking at in this particular attribute, is that God is love, what that means to us as believers. For example, in John's gospel, is the gospel of John, which you're all familiar with, if you look the end of that chapter 20 verse 31 John says these words these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing in him you might have life and in the context of that he talks about if all the things that Jesus did were written down the books of the world would not contain them even just talking about his three-year ministry on planet earth and so what John is saying is I have set forth in my gospel to emphasize one thing, that Jesus is God, and that by coming to him as God, you can have life. In the epistle of 1 John, its focus is for those of us who are believers, who have come to accept Christ and trust him as God and believe in him as our Savior and place our faith in him to be redeemed, to be born again, we know love. We know that God is love. Now notice on your handout the application for this. The attribute is God is love. What's the application? We are, what's the next word? Commanded to love one another. It is not a suggestion. It is not based on how you feel at the moment. We joked about it last week and it just becomes more and more understandable. Mary and I have been in the same house together for two months and I go out and do some things that I have to do, but we're in the house together a lot, and we've been married almost 47 years, and we, we love each other, but sometimes relationships can be what? Tense. There are certain things on HGTV that uh, I don't want to watch, and uh, there are certain things that I might want to watch. She even asked me yesterday, she says, are any sports on? So I'd watch TV, and I said, no, none. we watched the uh, 
golf thing last week with Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods, and, and really, we watched it together because she likes Peyton Manning, and I said, look, he's going to be playing. It's just fun to watch an amateur like me realize that Tom Brady and I hit the golf ball the same way until he hit that one from the fairway and it went in the hole. Then I realized, no, I don't, I don't do that. I've done that maybe once in, in my life. And just to realize that here's the best quarterback that's ever played football in the history of the game, and he can't play golfer, even though normally he's probably a better golfer. But the tense, the moment, and we sat there and watched that together and laughed, and we had a good time watching a sporting event. And the point is, we love each other, but there are times when we want to be what? In different parts of the house. Or I might want to be outside. And I, I, and I know with my wife, coronavirus or anything put aside, I can always go outside and know she ain't going to be out there. And so that, that, that's good. And I, so I can go out there and shoot baskets in the driveway or read or, or work in the yard. And, and we get our time. Like she, when she's in serious house cleaning mode like she was yesterday, she prefers I be where? Outside or out of the way. So but the point for us as when, when we understand this, we're going to walk through this and wrap it up today, and looking at this attribute, that God is love. The application for us, anytime you study scripture, you got one goal in mind. Lord, what do you want me to do with what I've just learned? What do you want me to do, Randy, personally, to do with what I've learned from scripture today, Father? Who is my dad? And dad, what do you want me, your son, to do. Application is always your goal. It's never knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's never to, ch- to check a mark that I've done my duty, that I've done my Bible study for the week, or I've worshipped, I've done my, my Christian thing. It's always to leave, not just a worship service, but time alone with the Lord in Scripture, having an action plan. So when you study this attribute of God, when we study the sovereignty of God, the, the action plan, and, and we, we sang about it today, and as we think about it as believers, the action plan for us with understanding the sovereignty of God is to trust him. Knowing that we can't figure everything out, but he is in control, and he is always working good, and the righteous live by faith. We trust him. Okay, the application for what we're looking at here is that God is love. And now we are commanded... First of all, as believers, to love one another. And then secondly, as salt and light in a culture that desperately needs to understand what real love is, which we know in Christ, to go share that. Sow those seeds. Water seeds maybe someone else has sown. And just see how you might have the opportunity to love someone that maybe it's not lovely. And we talked about this last week. We're not going to go back and exegete those verses. But most importantly, in applying the fact that I know God is love and I love others, I never expect reciprocation. Now, in a marriage relationship, you're going to get it. In a parent-child relationship, you might get it. If they're teenagers, you're not going to get it. As they grow older, things change. Like when your children are small, you're like a god. And about the time they hit 12, 13, you're in the way. But what God wants us to understand is love people who are total strangers to you. Love people that you know that hate you. 
choose to do what's right. That's what how agape love is defined. Choosing an act of the will, volitionally, to do what's right for the other person, even if they don't reciprocate, even if they hate you, even if they do things towards you that are unlovely. You respond by loving them. Why? Because our God is love. And by nature, we are to be loving people because we are Christians. The term literally means we're little Christs. We are to show, glorify God, let people see him. So if you look at your handout, this is what we hit last week as we get ready to wrap this up this week. Last week, we looked at number one, God's love toward us, giving us a divine nature. We're born of God. We have a relationship with God. We know him, the whole series, who's your daddy? And then we began to talk about in number two, God's love for us. So I want to start in verse 9 and transition into verse 10. And what we see in verse 9, that God has given us, as an act of love, the highest act of love ever manifested in the universe is God gave his only begotten son that we might have eternal life. Look at verse 9. In this, chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifested toward us or made publicly evident that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God gave us the capacity to have eternal life, not just heaven. And if you think Christianity is just dying and going to heaven, you don't understand Christianity and you don't understand that God is love. If, If all God was going to do was save us and take us to heaven, why didn't he just take us home the moment he saved us? Because he has something for us to do. It's called the Great Commission. To go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ, learn our followers. And by the way, the literal Greek there is not, just, is not go, even though it is a commandment. The literal is as you go. I'm going to send you places, and as you go, make disciples. That's, the, that's what the church age is that we currently are in, and we've been in since Jesus ascended, and we'll be in until Jesus comes back. We are in the church age. So God says to us, you are to be salt and light. You're to be that city that people are drawn to. Why? Because you know God. And you know that God is love. And you need to share that with people so they can understand life and have eternal life. So on your handout, that's what we talked about last week. God gives us eternal life through Jesus Christ, dying, going to spend eternity with God. We have that. But for him, we live for him right now. Because we've been given eternal life. We talked about last week, peace, hope. Now, verse 10, today, second point of that, God's love for us, to us, for us, is that he paid for our sins. So, okay, yeah, we all know Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins. Look how it's stated in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Second bullet point under number two on your handout. He paid for our sins. I know we know this. And we can all quote John 3.16. And we understand that God is love. Everybody loves to quote that. This is one of the most exciting verses in all the Bible. Notice the first two words. In this. You see those two little words? Context. What are they referring to? Look at verse 9 again. The context is, in this, in this incredible gift of the sent one, or the Son of God, when he made his love manifest, the highest expression of love, as I mentioned a moment ago, ever in the universe, 
In this expression, we call it the crucifixion. At Calvary, Golgotha, when God himself took our wrath. We'll talk about that in a moment. God manifested the highest expression of love a human being will ever see. We know, and that's why the application for us is the commandment, love people. Let them see how much Jesus loved you and loves them. So notice the way verse 10 is structured. Our redemption, the price being our sins being paid for, was initiated by God because God is love. Context. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent. In this is love, not that we loved God. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. Romans 5 verse 8 says this. God demonstrates his own love toward us, demonstrates, make, make, demonstrates makes evident, his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we loved God. Please don't miss that. We understand grace. We understand mercy. And that's exactly what it's talking about. God initiated our redemption, not because we were loving him, and he said, wow, they appreciate my creation, and they appreciate I created them, and they appreciate all that I've given to them, and, and they love me. No. It was initiated by God. Why? Because God is love. He showed us grace. He showed us mercy. And so he said, I love you. Despite the fact, Romans 5, 8, you don't love me. You don't appreciate what I've done for you. Adam and Eve, original sin, Perfect example. They didn't appreciate all that God had given to them. So instead they listened to Satan and sinned. After God had been incredibly good to them. So God, the the message of verse 10 is, I'm going to pay for your sins. I'm going to initiate this. I'm going to do this for you. Why? Because I love you. Notice the verse. Not that we love God, but, favorite word in the Bible, contrast, but that he loved us. It wasn't because of our character that God loved us and sent Jesus. It was because of what? His character. He's love. And one thing you'll, I'm going to remind you over and over as we keep looking at the attributes of God. He is all of his attributes simultaneously. He is holy. He is righteous. He is fair. He is just. Next week we're going to talk about he's immutable. All of those things, transcendent, on and on and on. God's attributes, he is all of those holy at the same time. He manifests them by loving us. So he says to you here, it's not because you love me, it's because I loved you. The reason Jesus was sent was the character of God. Notice verse 10. Not that he loved us, but he sent his son because of his love for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says this. We've quoted it many times in this series. He who, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ was our substitute. We could not be righteous on our own merit. We couldn't. And so God took our place. Ephesians 2. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now notice verse 10, the rest of it. So he sent him to do what? To be the propitiation for our 
sins. We've talked about this word many times over the years. The word propitiation, without going into great detail, which is hard for me not to do, the word propitiation means satisfaction of something. He is the sent one by God because he loved us, satisfied God's demand that somebody's got to pay for sin. The wrath of God was satisfied. Justice was done. Debt was paid so that our relationship could be restored. It's a fabulous word in the original language. Propitiation in the original language is also translated mercy seat. In the Old Testament Greek translation, it's called the Septuagint. It's mercy seat, same word. Mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people. See the picture? Jesus, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, is our mercy seat. His blood is sprinkled in our hearts. He shed his blood so our sins could be atoned for. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, the word covering where God provided skins for them to cover their shame, the word means atonement. The message of the Bible is that God provides redemption and by faith we trust him and we become as a result the righteous. Not really good people, but those who are declared right with God because of the gift. The crucifixion, the propitiation. So the summary of God's love for us, point two on your handout, can be found in this verse. Titus 3, just listen. Titus 3 verse 5 says this. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Back to application for a moment before we get to point three. Look on your handout again and tell me the application of understanding and learning the attribute that God is love. We are what? Commanded to love one another. It doesn't mean love them even though you don't want to. Yes, it does mean that in a sense. But the idea is this. Is that once I'm born again and I understand how much God loved me. By nature, I'm given a new nature. By nature, what do I want to do? I want other people to know that. I want other people to understand that kind of love. D.L. Moody, great theologian, put it this way about his life. The first impulse of a young convert is to love. Do you remember the day you were converted? Was not your heart full of sweet peace and love? I remember the morning morning I came out of my room after I had first trusted Christ. I thought the old sun shone in a good deal brighter than it ever had before. I thought that the sun was just smiling upon me. I walked out upon Boston Common and heard the birds in the trees, and I thought they were all singing a song for me. Do you know I fell in love with the birds? I never cared for them before, and now it seemed to me that I was in love with all creation. I had not a bitter feeling against any man, and I was ready to take all men to my heart 
If a man has not the love of God shed abroad in his heart, he's never been regenerated. Now, end quote. On a personal note, I'm not D.L. Moody, but I really understand what I just read to you. I still remember April 19th, 1970, sitting in that little room at Poplar and Kirby Parkway and Central Cumberland Presbyterian Church and a guy sitting down with me and my two best friends and introducing us to Jesus Christ and, and us trusting Christ as our Savior. And I remember what a radical change it was for me and how I just wanted to tell people about it. Now, I, have a go- I realize I have a goofy personality and, and, and I love to talk to people, but I wanted people that I knew to understand that God loved them because I finally, for the first time, understood it. And even now, 50 years later, some of these things that Moody's talking about, and sometimes I think it's just because I'm becoming an, an old man, or maybe I'm not becoming, maybe I am. Well, last night, I'm sitting out in my driveway. I've been shooting basketball a little while, and it's dusk, and, and it was, I just you know, look up in the sky again, I can see the moon, it just, and I love to think about, you know, I can hear birds and the cicadas, and it always brings me back to scripture, and God said, these are all a reminder that I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere, and I love you. As difficult as your moment might be, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, and I love you. And I think Moody hit the nail on the head, is that the first impulse of a young convert is to love. You want other people to meet Jesus, to understand redemption, to know that God is love, what that really means, what it really means. All right, let's wrap this up. Look at point three on your handout. So the rest of the section that we're looking at, verses 11 through 16, It's not only that God's, we've seen God's love to us, we've seen God's love for us. So then on an ongoing basis, we understand that God's love abides in us. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, and by the way, the the understanding here in the original language is, is because or since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What you're going to see in verses 11 through 16 is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, how they're at work in our lives as the beloved. Verse 11, children of God, beloved. But also you need to see what our response should, that should be, our response to that kind of love. What does God want from us? What do we need to do? So let's look first at God the Father, verse 12. No one has seen God in any time. If we love one another, as we are commanded to do, implied in the text context, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Back to verse 11. If God so loved us, or since he has, we also ought to love one another. Without belaboring the point again, this is our moral obligation. Why? Because, number one, it's been commanded to us by Jesus Christ our Savior, our Lord. 
but also it's who we are. We are Christians. Christians love each other and the world. It's to be drawn to that. Jesus made it clear that they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Genuine agape love, not reciprocal, even though it is reciprocal in many cases. But unconditional, sacrificial, servant love for each other because of who we are. It's our moral obligation. It's our reasonable response. If God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. I love, when I, every time I think about this, I think about that incredible passage in Romans 12. After laying out Romans 1 through 11, all the great doctrines of scripture, of, of the faith, and what it means to be born again, and what it means to be sanctified, and what it means to be glorified, Paul then says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or I beg you, by the mercies of God, which he'd been writing about in verses one, chapters 1 through 11, the mercies of God. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, oxymoron, dead to self, alive to God. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable form or service of worship. In other words, the reasonable response as a, to, from a believer to a God who has shown you these incredible mercies is to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Here I am, use me. We saw that with Isaiah a few weeks ago. Here I am, send me, use me. Same thing here. It's our moral obligation. It's our reasonable response. Love each other. It's our spiritual debt. It's what we owe. Paul writes in another place. Paul writes, love one another. It's the only debt you owe. It's to love each other. The little word beloved in verse 11 is a tender adjective used only in scripture to talking about believers. And it's John's reminder. It's his favorite word to describe that and little children. He uses a lot in this epistle. The reminder that we're fellow believers. We're in the same family. We have an obligation to each other. That this fact that God loved us motivates us, look at verse 11 again, to love one another. We want to be like our dad. It's our debt. It's our duty. Then verse 12, no one's seen God at any time. If we love one another, the context talks about as we do that, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Here's the point. Again, staggering for us to understand as Christians. People can't see God. You, you may have done this yourself over the years. I've talked to a lot of people who have, and you'll hear people say it. If God would just reveal himself to me, I'll follow him. What did Jesus say about that? Even if a man comes back from the dead, they're what? They're not going to believe. Which, by the way, is exactly what happened and is happening you please understand the import of verse 12 in your life and in my life and in our life corporately as the church. We have the unique and unbelievable privilege to reveal the invisible God to our world as we do what? Love one another. In the legitimate sense of what that means, 
We reveal the invisible God, our Father, to others as we love one another. Verse 12, God desires to abide in us, with us. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, quote, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. From the very beginning, the highest thing God created was man. And he had an intimate personal relationship with man. He walked with him in the cool of the garden from the very beginning. At the tabernacle in the temple, after giving them the law, God said, I will meet you here, called the tent of meeting. I will meet you here. Jesus was God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We, the church, today, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? We belong to God. We are his. He bought us with a price. So look again at verse 12. No one's seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That word abide or some form of it is used six times in five verses here. Six times. Very important. And it simply means to remain in oneness with someone. Spiritual oneness. In other words, that there are no barriers between me and God. The only barriers that that can be created between me and God are created by whom? Me. Because God is love and he never changes. We'll talk about that next week. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So if something's changed, whose fault is it? That'd be me. That would be me. Go back to the Garden of Eden one more time. God had placed them there, given them the one restriction. He was showing up every day, walking with them in the cool of the garden, and then one day he shows up, and they, who's, who's not there? They are. He showed up. Where were they? They were hiding. They didn't want to see God. Have you ever felt like the last person you'd like to encounter at this moment is God? Because of something you just did or thinking about doing? Yeah. I know I have. I know I do. Yet God constantly reminds us in Scripture, I love you. I know you're a knucklehead. I still love you. Knucklehead's a Hebrew. I still love you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. Crawl up in my arms. Trust me and do what's right. Do what you know you're supposed to do. I'm going to be with you. And when you fail, I'm going to be with you then. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to be waiting for you on the other side. I'm omnipresent. And I'm also omniscient. So you're not hiding anything. Let's make this relationship work. Grow. Deepen it. So you can be everything I created you to be. John 14, Jesus said in the upper room discourse, said this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. 
And we, plural, will come and make our home with him. You love God? He's involved in your life. You'll love others. No one's seen God at any time. By the way, this is interesting in the original language, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. The God there has, does not have the Greek definite article, which means unique, only one. So what it means is, no, I'm sorry, the no has, doesn't have the Greek definite article. It means no, no body, no individual has definitely seen all that they can see of God because we are finite. We can't handle the infinity. We can't see the totality of God and understand it. Yet, the power of verse 12 is, where does God abide? Look at it again. Verse 12, where does he desire to abide? In us. And that has the Greek definite article. The only true God desires to abide his person in us. And he does that now in verse 13 in the Holy Spirit. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit abides in us and proves to us that we belong to God. Ephesians calls it the seal, the down payment, the earnest money of our salvation. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So here you see the Trinity mentioned a moment ago. God has sent the Son, God the Father has sent the Son, God the Son, to be the Savior, and God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, seals that in our lives. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verse 13 again, by this we know. The Greek word there for know means by experience. We have experienced the Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, you see the gospel in a nutshell. We've seen and testified the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. We there means the apostles, specifically, but also they were eyewitnesses of this, but also in our lives that it is true. We've seen and we've testified that Jesus is the God. Verse 14, one more time. We've seen, we've testified, the Father has sent the Son as, quote, Savior of the world. Culturally, and during this time, the Romans would look at their emperor, their Caesar, and they would call him Savior, even Savior of the world. It became the state religion of Rome, but you worship the Caesar. That's why you see in the Gospels, they say, they're trying to crucify Jesus. We have no God but Caesar. So he was known. So at least eight Roman emperors carried that title, Savior of the world. And the point being, they held the world together as the great Roman power, the emperor, providing Pax Romana, peace, prosperity, protection. But then they had the cult of, they called Christ, the cult of Christ, when Jesus was worshipped as God. And so they wanted to persecute the Christians as much as they could at all costs because they didn't worship Caesar. Now, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This gift of God that he's been talking about, the gift of the sent one, is for anyone 
who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. The word confesses means agrees. Agrees. Jesus is God. And you hold that your confession. That's why you've seen historically the church has what they call their confessions. This is what we agree to, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Verse 16, we've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. Summing it up, he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible says this. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. To all generations. What was interesting about the early church, we just talked about what they called the cult of Christ. The early church changed the world because they believed that Jesus was God. When he rose from the dead and submitted in their hearts, that he's exactly who he said he was. I am the great I am. I am Messiah. I am God. And they were willing to give their lives. Many did. Martyred for their faith. They believed. And how they changed the world was that they loved people. They would treat lepers and care for lepers when no one else would go near them. They loved the people no one else would love. They loved their enemies. I want to read you something that was written not by a Christian man, but by a writer. This was in A.D. 210, obviously early, early in the church, first 200 years. Written by Cecilius, Roman writer, and he wrote this about Christians, quote, They know one another by secret marks and signs. And they love one another almost before they know one another. End quote. Another writer, a Greek writer, about A.D. 120 to 200, somewhere in that range, Lucian wrote these words about the church. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus has put into their heads that they're all brethren, end quote. And then the church father Tertullian said, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. They were different. I want you to look at the bottom of your handout just four little points we're going to look at, five little points, excuse me, and then we're done. To sum up, it's an incredible attribute that God is love. Point number one, it's incomprehensible. Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, height, depth, 
any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He he leaves out nothing. And the point is, nothing can separate us from that love. And it carries you through this life into the next life and for all eternity. Because God is love. It's, It's incomprehensible from a finite human mind. We do the best we can, but you know how we manifest it. So we love each other and we love other people. Second, it's eternal. We've talked about it a lot, but Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting. Not temporal, not just for a while, permanently. It's an unselfish love. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Certainly one of my favorite books is Philippians. In Philippians 2, talking about an unselfish love, Paul writes this, talking about Jesus. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself choice of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Again, leaving out no being. All beings will bow before Jesus, bow the knee. He chose to love us, unselfish. It's also unmerited, Ephesians 2, verse you know, passage you know well. Unmerited. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That someone is rightly said, foot of the cross, we're all equal. And finally, it's Unconditional. Revelation 1, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Loved us. We mentioned a great passage, 1 Corinthians 13 last week, love is patient, love is kind. At the end of that, that chapter it says, now abide these three, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. We have faith, which carries us. We have hope. We know our future. We share our faith and our hope with other people by loving them. I'm going to read you this true story, and then we're going to be done. During the Korean War, there was a young officer, communist. He ordered a Christian man, civilian, to be executed. He learned that his prisoner was in charge of an orphanage and was doing much good in caring for small children. He decided he would spare the Christian's life and kill his son instead. The 19-year-old boy was shot in the presence of his father. Later, when the tide of events had changed and this same officer, the communist, was captured who had executed the son, he was captured, he was tried, and he was condemned to death for war crimes. But before the sentence could be carried out, the Christian father pleaded for the life of this communist who had killed his son. He admitted that if justice were followed, this man should be executed. But since he was so young and blindly idealistic, 
he probably thought that his actions were right. Quote from the Christian, give him to me, give him to me. I'll teach him about the Savior. They granted the request. That father took the murderer of his son into his own home. And as a result, that communist who had murdered his son got saved and became a Christian pastor. Now, could I do that? Probably not. Should I do that? Yes. We may not ever be faced with anything that dramatic, but there are people that you can love who don't expect it. And I've had some experience with that. And they don't even know. They're like, well, why are you doing this? What a great opportunity to simply say, because Jesus loves you and I love you. God is love. We are commanded to love one another. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, as we wrap up our time together, thinking about this amazing attribute that you are love, and you command us to love as we have been loved, to forgive as we've been forgiven. We're just simply grateful, Father, for Jesus Christ. So I pray for all of us as as Christians, those born again, that we would understand the way we manifest our faith and our hope is by loving other people. That attribute is so essential that we understand you are love. What does that mean? Give us chances, Father, to tell people God loves them and what that really means. Not what they think, what it really means. God loves you and gave himself for you. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here in the building, please stand. And at home, you're welcome to stand if you want to as the worship team leads us.